Today's scripture reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogues. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could not do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and were healed. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and were healed. This is God's word. The church has lost the battle. Or so it seems. The nuns, spelled N-O-N-E-S, those describing themselves as atheist, agnostic, or no religion at all, has grown by 12% in our country over the last decade. Evangelical Christians have declined by 6%. More and more Christian youth who seem to be vibrant in their faith at one time are walking away from their faith today. Christians are being marginalized as they oppose the social engineering of today. And the gospel itself grates against the cherished cultural values of inclusiveness and expressive individualism. Why evangelize if people are annoyed by rather than interested in our faith? Why tell people about Jesus if they're much more likely to reject us than to give us a listening ear? Why proclaim Christ if it seems that we drive people further from him instead of closer to him? Let's pray. Our Father, you are here with us, and we call upon you to take your word and to minister it to each of us where we are on our spiritual journey. Draw us to your throne the throne of Christ at your right hand that we might see him, we might see you in your glory. 
and find rest and peace and confidence and trust as we walk forward with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not alone in being dejected about the state of evangelism. The disciples must have felt similarly as they witnessed Jesus being resoundingly rejected by those who should have embraced him. We read the beginning of our passage. Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where does this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? See, the disciples had already been exposed to a roller coaster of responses to Jesus. They witnessed the masses excited about Jesus' miracles and then heard his friends say he was deluded. They saw people clamoring for Christ and then witnessed the religious leaders vehemently rejecting him. They had just come off an emotional high as they witnessed Jesus raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. So as they entered Nazareth, they expected that Jesus would receive a hero's welcome. And at first, that seemed to be the case as we read in verse 3. Is not this, oh, excuse me, that seemed to be the first case as they were astonished by his miracles and his wisdom. And that is until we read in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. See, they didn't just dismiss Jesus, they were offended by him. He appeared to be asserting his authority over them, but they knew better. He was ordinary. One pastor describes their perspective. They knew Jesus' occupation. He was not a trained rabbi nor an intensely studied Pharisee. He worked construction. Since Nazareth contained only around 500 people, they probably walked by or directly used things that Jesus built every day. Second, they knew his family. They knew his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. It's significant that they called Jesus the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph, because even if Joseph had died, it would have been natural to call Jesus by the name of his father. To call Jesus Mary's son likely means that they were implying that his birth was illegitimate. Having questioned all these things about Jesus, Mark gives us their conclusion They took offense at him. They were blinded by his ordinariness. They were astonished by his works and his words, but it was too big of a leap to acknowledge him as coming from God. How dare this wet-behind-the-ears kid we watch grow up and work among us claim to be a prophet whose words should direct our lives, alleged to be the Christ who lays claim on our lives. See, no quantity or quality of miracles could ever convince them that they should give this homegrown boy preeminence. They were offended that he would expect this of them. 
Jesus' ordinariness is still a stumbling block today. It's the reason for more and more people rejecting him as we more and more seek personal autonomy. A 2020 survey found that over half of Americans believe that Jesus is a great moral teacher, but not God. Even one-third of self-identified evangelicals do not believe in the deity of Christ. It's hard to believe that someone who walked among us, who experienced every one of our emotions, who had a human nature like ours, could actually be the majestic creator and Lord of the universe. No number of miracles, even a resurrection, could convince many of us. We can accept him as a great moral teacher, but we're offended by the divine identity. We often hear people receive the name of God, but react and are offended when we speak the name of Christ. Because if he is God, then his words should direct our lives and he should rule our lives. We won't give preeminence to a mere man, but we must to a divine man. Verses 4 and 6, Jesus said to them, A prophet is without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his household, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, Jesus wasn't surprised. The closer people were to him, the more likely they were to dismiss him. They saw too much of his ordinariness. And he felt the sting of rejection from his hometown, from his relatives, and even from his siblings. His own brothers and sisters disbelieved right through his crucifixion. It appears to have changed after Pentecost. Early tradition points to at least two of his brothers eventually becoming believers in writing the epistles of James and Jude. Jesus wasn't surprised by unbelief. He wasn't angry. And he wasn't offended. He marveled at their unbelief. Unbelief despite the facts and the proofs, the teaching and the miracles, the fulfillment of prophecy, despite all the gifts he offered them, despite his promised blessings for Israel and for the whole world. He was astonished and we should be too. But we're not. What do we feel in the face of unbelief when we share the gospel? Anger, embarrassment, offense, dejection, rejection. These are poisonous responses. They're self-consuming. These feelings turn us inward at a time our world needs most for us to be outward. They're defeatist, lessening our faith and trust in Christ. And they're disheartening, leading to a greater reluctance for us 
to share the gospel. They cause us to withdraw. Imagine having a limitless fortune and you offer people a hundred billion dollars. So what do you feel when you're rejected? Do you feel embarrassed, angry, dejected? No. You would marvel that someone would pass up such an incredible gift. The gift of Jesus Christ is much greater than a hundred billion dollars. We should marvel when it's passed up. We should be astonished that God himself lived among us, walked as one of us. But it doesn't seem to matter to many people. He performed miracles. He taught truth with authority like no one else. He rose from the dead, yet people don't wrestle with his claims. He offers himself as life and light and truth and hope, yet he's dismissed out of hand. He sacrificed his life so we could be united with God, so that we could have eternal life, and people walk by his cross barely giving him a glance. He promised to make every right wrong, reverse every curse in our broken world, and yet those who want to help heal the world fail to consider him. It's astonishing. See, marveling with Jesus will turn us from being inward to being outward and upward. Our faith will be strengthened as we revisit all of what Christ has done for us. We'll become more enamored with him as we reflect on his incredible patience and deep compassion for humanity that rejects him. We'll draw close to him as we recall his incomprehensible sacrificial love for us. We'll glory in him as we're reminded of his sovereign power. We'll reestablish our compassion for our neighbors. We'll renew our hope for the world and we'll reinvigorate our desire to share the gospel. See, marveling will transform us. There's two lessons for evangelism in our passage. Marvel when Christ is rejected and trust Christ's authority when you share the gospel. Trust his authority. Verse 7, And Jesus called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. The battle is on. And the key word is authority. The villagers in Nazareth wondered about Jesus' authority. They asked, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? If they dared to answer that and answer that correctly, they would not have been offended by Jesus. They would have fallen at his feet. But they never pursued that question. See, 
Jesus is an authority unto himself. The incarnate Son of God, who is God, fulfilling God the Father's purpose, will, and mission. That's his authority. See, the rabbis would cite Torah as their authority. Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He taught his disciples, abide in me. Abide in my words. Keep my commandments. His authority was in himself because he is God. And yet in verse 7, we see he delegates his authority to his disciples. If someone asked them, where do you get these things? They would have responded, from Jesus. I'm carrying out Jesus' mission with his words, his power, and his authority. We go in his name. Believers in Christ have been given the same authority. Whenever we speak his words and follow his will, his authority resides in us. We should be sheepish about our evangelism if our authority is ourselves. We should be personally offended when rejected if the source of our message comes from within. But when we consider that authority comes from Jesus, we should be emboldened to share the gospel, confident in the message, and honored to be aligned with Christ no matter what response we receive. Jesus' instructions provide additional insights into how to carry out his commission. We read verses 8 through 13. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. To wear sandals, not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and appointed with oil, anointed with oil many who were sick, and he healed them. This charge is specific to the disciples at that time. Their miraculous powers appear to have been temporary. Outside of a similarly unique commissioning of 72 disciples in Luke, I can't recall of any mention of the disciples working miracles until after Pentecost. Jesus eventually replaced these instructions in Luke. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. See, 
Despite the uniqueness of Jesus' commission in Mark 6, there are still valuable principles for us to learn. We see the value of community in evangelism as expressed in the fact that Jesus sent them out two by two, not alone. Now, this doesn't mean you have to go out in pairs to evangelize. It does mean that community is very important in our lives and especially in evangelism. You know, one of our Sunday school classes just brainstormed about the benefits of evangelizing with others as a part of your community. And within minutes, they came up with 14 benefits of being together in our evangelism. Among them is the efficacy of their prayers, their personal encouragement, their model, the sharing of experiences, their complementary gifting, and the fact that we could call on them to be with us if needed. Now, as Travis and I have learned in co-pastoring, one and one makes three or four or five. Because not only do we add our ideas together, but those ideas stimulate other ideas and they multiply. And that gets enhanced when we, we add Eric to the team, when we team with other staff members, when we team with you. It just expands and the same is true for you. The same will happen when you partner with others. We see the value of community we see the importance of trusting God. We see this in his charge to travel without provisions. It's interesting that his first provisions preclude, excuse me, his first commission precluded provisions. His second commission included them. His first taught them to trust God. You can go out with nothing but God. But the second, equip yourself, bring a knapsack. That taught them to use their wisdom. The first reminds us that we're completely dependent upon God for his work. The second, that God uses our resources and gifts. And together, we're reminded that we plant we water, we harvest, but it's God who causes the increase, that God goes with us. We can trust him in that. The exclusivity of Christ is seen in the charge to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against their rejection of Christ. See, in our pluralistic society, it's anathema to say that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Yet Jesus' commission doubles down on that. If they reject that, shake the dust off your feet. It shows us that those who reject Jesus Christ are not accepted by God. No matter what sincerity or energy they put into their faith they will be held accountable. Each of us will be held accountable for our decision about Christ. 
we must not water down the gospel. The gospel message is built on repentance. The disciples' message was the same as Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, repentance, which means changing direction, prepares us for Jesus. It calls us who are looking in one direction, away from God, towards sin, to turn around toward God. And when we do, and we see him in his, our, his holiness, we will realize our sinfulness. We will realize we are in trouble and that we desperately need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. Miracles validate the gospel. The disciples multiplied Jesus' ministry. Instead of only Jesus going out, six teams were now spreading the news. But since Jesus wasn't with them, they needed proof that God was speaking through them. That proof came through the casting out of demons and the healing of the sick. We should still point to Jesus' miracles for validation of his claims, especially the miracle of his resurrection. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we're fools for believing it. We're perpetrating a lie. But Christ is raised. Therefore, everything he teaches is true. All that he offers is real and will come to pass. There are many takeaways from our passage. The two most important, marvel at unbelief, trust in Christ's authority. Marveling can reinvigorate our passion to share the gospel. Trusting in Christ's authority can restore our confidence in it. We may feel we lost the battle today. Step back to a millennium to what the disciples must have felt as Jesus' lifeless body was removed from the cross. All hope was gone. The powers of the day, the Jewish and Roman authorities, they conspired to end his life. He was rejected by his own people who cried, crucify him. And they themselves had denied Jesus through their cowardice. All hope was gone. What motivation did they have to share the good news that Christ proclaimed? It had been thoroughly rejected, and it would only bring persecution. That is, until three days later. Not all had been lost. It was won by Jesus' resurrection. Everyone around us needs to hear of that victory. Go in his authority and marvel when someone passes up the greatest gifts of life. Let's pray. Our Father, you've spoken to us through your word. May your spirit take it Grant us the confidence and the authority you've given us. 
Give us the boldness of knowing that you walk with us. And Lord, renew the beauty of the gospel in all it offers as we marvel when people don't believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.